This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. And at that time, we went all around Israel. It was one of those tours that takes you all over the country. And among the areas that we went to was the general area where John the Baptist had baptized folks in the Jordan River. Now, you would be surprised. I don't know, maybe you wouldn't be surprised. But I was surprised at how many people go to the Jordan River in order to be baptized. And I was surprised by how many people go to the Jordan River to be baptized who had already been baptized and just wanted to do it again in this context. Busload after busload after busload go to the Jordan with this intention in mind over a million people a year. Now, as a side note, I don't recommend that. One baptism is enough. There's no extra credit for getting it done in the Jordan. But with that said, back in John the Baptist's day, there were a lot of people that went to this area. In John's day, it included all manner of people from every range of society. It even included the Pharisees. Now, why would the Pharisees go to be baptized by John? Well, the short answer is this. They did it for the same reason they did all manner of things. They did it to be seen. They did it to be seen by other people who were looking for some sort of religious experience. They thought that, well, they would do that too. You know, Jesus once said this about the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Well, since the crowds were going to the water to be baptized by John, the Pharisees decided, well, we'll go there as well. And they sought out the same baptism. Now, with that said, let's say you're John the Baptist. You just had broken sinners come to you in order to be baptized in the waters of the Jordan. And then you look over to the side and you see a handful of the religious elites dressed in their finery, looking all prim and proper, coming to you and expecting you to do the same thing to them expecting you to baptize them in this baptism of repentance. If you're John the Baptist, what's your response going to be? Do you think John looked at these hard-hearted, pompous individuals, individuals that Christ himself would call a brood of vipers? Do you think he looked at these individuals and you know, threw open his arms and hugged them and gently led them into the water? Well, if so, you don't know much about John, because that was not the approach that John had. Let me read, in order to set the table for today's study, let me read from a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 3 about these Pharisees who came to John. Because I think we'll see an interesting contrast between his response and approach to them and his response and approach to Christ. So earlier in Matthew 3, in verse 5, it says this. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, to John, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Verse 8 says, John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Because of that, if you were to undergo it, you ought to have something that you need to repent from. And you ought to recognize the need for that repentance. John's baptism was reserved for the broken heart. It was reserved for sinners who were confessing their sins, who were repenting of their wrongdoings before God. That was the nature of John's baptism. It wasn't for charlatans. It wasn't for pretenders. It wasn't for people just looking for a religious experience, whatever that might be. And it certainly was not for the impenitent. What does that word mean? Impenitent means for those who had no sense of a need for penance, no sense of a need to repent and turn from their wicked ways. 
You know, there was actually two types of people that John never baptized. Two types and never baptized. The first sort was the Pharisees. It was the ones who weren't really sorry for their sins, who were just looking to have a religious experience or just to be seen by others having a religious experience. So that was the first type, that he never baptized those folks. Now, what was the second type that he never baptized? Well, here's the thing. Although it had actually never come up before, John wouldn't baptize anyone who had never sinned. What good would a baptism of repentance do for someone who had no sins that they needed to repent of? Again, it hadn't come up, but theoretically he wouldn't do it. To John, neither the impenitent nor the sinless were suitable candidates for baptism. Well, with that said, guess what? On this one day, he would encounter both. On this one day, he would encounter both the impenitent as well as the sinless. On this busy day by the banks of the Jordan River, both the impenitent and the sinless would request baptism of him, and at least initially, he would turn away both. However, one of them would make a more persuasive case. Let's read about that case now as we look again at verses 13 and 14. So verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John of the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him. Remember, John didn't baptize sinless people. John tried to prevent him and said, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. All right, let's again, let's talk geography for a minute here. As verse 13 begins, it refers to two very distinct geographical regions. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it all just flows together. You know, you don't make any real distinction. Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, you know, we just think of it all as some portion of sand in the Middle East. Well, these are very distinct regions that are being referred to here. The first region is called Galilee. Verse 13 says, Jesus went from Galilee, which was to the north, down to see John in the south, southeast, who was hanging out by the banks of the Jordan River in a region not far from where Jericho had been. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you might recall that these areas, they could not be more different. If you go to the northern part of Israel, if you go up to Galilee, you find it's just gorgeous. It's lush and green, and you can go out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. You see mountains to the north, even perhaps some snow at the top in the far, far north. You see all manner of things that are just wonderful and beautiful off to the north. But you travel to the south, not so much. You travel to the south, and have you ever pictured what the wilderness looked like? You know, sagebrush and tumbleweeds and the like? That's the south. The south is where the Dead Sea is, and it's earned its name. The whole region is just stark, and it's just unpleasant, and that's where Jesus went to. He went from a region that was lush and green, a wonderful region, and he traveled into the heart of unpleasantness down towards the southeast, down near Jericho. Now, why did he do that? If this was a long trek, which it was, to a place that otherwise you really wouldn't want to go, then why did Jesus do it? Well, we see in verse 13, he went to be baptized. He went to be baptized by John. Now, that brings us to the question that we asked at the opening of today's sermon. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Why would a sinless man seek out a baptism of repentance? To use a, I don't know, a techie term, you know, does not compute is what kind of comes to mind as we look at that. Why would he do this? Even to John, it did not compute. To John, this seemed like a flip-flop, and that's what he tells Jesus. He goes, Jesus, I'm flattered that you would seek me out. I'm flattered that you made the trip and all like, but here's the thing. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you and not the other way around. 
That's what was going on in John's mind, and that's what he said with his lips. He says, Jesus, no, 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 no. Not going to happen. Jesus, if any baptism occurs between you and me, it's going to be you baptizing me because I need it. I'm not even worthy to tie your shoelaces. I am a sinner. If there's going to be a baptism that's going to occur, you're going to baptize me. Now, John knew who Jesus was, not just by name, but he knew of his divine nature. You remember back when they were just infants? Who was John the Baptist's mother? Elizabeth. And how was she related to Mary? They were cousins. Jesus and John were relatives. They may be distant. It could have been a second or third cousin, but they were relatives. With that said, back when they were infants, even back when they were in the womb of their respective mothers, there was something in Luke 1 that happened that was interesting. When Mary came to visit Elizabeth and came into proximity, and the baby Jesus within the womb of Mary came close to the baby John in the womb of Elizabeth, we read in Luke 1 that John the Baptist, even in that moment, leapt for joy, even in the womb, at the mere proximity to Christ. John knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus was, and he always had, even from the womb. He knew that this one was the divine Son of God, the Lamb that was sent to take away the sins of the world. He knew who Jesus was. He knew his divine origins. He knew this one. And with that said, he also knew himself. And he knew that he himself was a sinner. And so that is what was going on in John's mind. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows who he is, and he knows that if there's a need for baptism, it's certainly not for Jesus to be baptized by John, but the other way around. And so that's what he says in verses 13 and 14. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized, and John tries to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. What would Christ's response to that be? Well, let's look at verse 15. Verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. As answers to questions go, what Jesus told John was very simple. I mean, it's only one sentence, right? It was very simple. Also, very confusing. Very confusing. See, on the one hand, Jesus' response to John is, John, just do it. John, suffer it now. John, permit it now. John, just do it. That's the simple answer. Baptize me already is, in effect, what he says at the outset there. But then... He adds a theological reason for John to consider and for us to consider as well. He says this. He says, John, permit it now because it's fitting, it's appropriate, it's good for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? You've read this text before. What in the world does that mean? Jesus says to John, let's do it, let's do it now, let's get it done. He says, it's good and wise and appropriate that we do so in order to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? Well, in order to answer that, we need to put on our thinking caps this morning. Let me ask you a question, a thinking question. Which is more important to your salvation, the death that Jesus died or the life that Jesus lived? Which one's more important to your salvation? His death on Calvary or things like his baptism here? Which is more important? Well, if you're detecting a trick question, your antenna are correct. This is a trick question because the answer is what? Both. 
They're both essential. They're both necessary to your salvation. If someone asks you what's more important, the death that Jesus died or the life that he lived, the right answer is both. You cannot be saved with only one of the two. Only one of the two is not sufficient, and we're going to explain why that is. See, on the one hand, Christ's death is essential for the obvious reasons. That's the one that usually comes to our mind. We think to ourselves, well, if Jesus didn't pay my debt on Calvary, then I would be forced to pay it myself. And if the wages of that sin is death, then I'm doomed. And you're right, that's absolutely true. So Christ's death and his resurrection was essential for our salvation. But is that the only thing that we need? The answer is no. That was all that it needed. If all Jesus had to do was die on a cross in order to save you and I, if that's all he had to do, then theoretically he could have just beamed down to the cross, died, got it over with. That would have been that. If all Jesus had to do was die on a cross, that could have been accomplished in a moment with no need for things like his birth in a manger, with no need like his temptation in the wilderness, with no need for his baptism, with no need for his obedience, with no need for all his various sufferings. If Christ's death accomplished the only thing that you need, then theoretically there's no need for the rest of it. However, that's bad theology. And we're going to explain why. See, it isn't just Christ's atoning death that saves us. You're not saved only by the death that he died, but also by the life that he lived. Do you understand that distinction? If not, I'm going to try to explain it here in the next few minutes. You see, when he was on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, there's two things that happened there. Now on the one hand, when Jesus was on the cross, your sins and my sins were placed upon him, were imputed to him, were credited to him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that happened. On the cross, your sin and my sin was placed upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now that's the part we're familiar with. That's the part that we readily understand. Our sins were imputed to him on Calvary. But is that the only imputation that occurred? Well, the answer is no. That's not the only transaction that happened. Having your sins removed from you is enough to make you forgiven, but it's not enough to make you righteous. And in today's text, Jesus says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. So what is this righteousness? You know, if you were to take a criminal and you were to wipe that criminal's record clean of all his convictions, all of his crimes, theoretically, he might no longer be guilty before the court, right? It's been forgiven. Record's clean, right? But that criminal's still not righteous. You can wipe his record clean. He's still not righteous. In the same way, if you were to have your traffic record, your traffic tickets wiped clean, that doesn't immediately make you a good driver, So what makes you a good driver? A history of good driving. If all that happened on Calvary was that your sins were removed, that doesn't make you righteous. It just makes you not sinful. However, entrance into heaven requires something more than you just being not sinful. Now, for some of us, that confounds our thinking because all we've ever been taught is all I have to do is not have any sins. Well, on the one hand, yeah, you can't have any sins. That goes without saying. But you also need to be righteous. And just having your sins removed from you does not necessarily make you righteous. Now let me build on this. Heaven requires more than just a clean slate. The doors of heaven might as well have a sign that says only the righteous need apply. Now, do you want proof of that from Scripture? I should hope you do because it's a bold claim. Well, Matthew 5, Christ said this. He's talking to his disciples and he says this. 
He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. From that alone, we can extract this. We need this righteousness. Whatever it is, we can figure that much out. I need to be righteous. It's apparently not optional. It's apparently not peripheral. But that said, the good news of the gospel is this, that while he was on Calvary, it wasn't just that our sins were placed on him. That was the first imputation. But the second imputation is this, that at the same time, his righteousness was granted to us. You see, Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. It's not just that he died the death that you should have died. Yes, he did that. Amen and amen. But he also lived the life that you should have lived. There's all sorts of points of temptation that you've given into. And even though you're forgiven for that, that doesn't necessarily make you righteous. However, Jesus, when he lived on this globe for the 33 some odd years that he lived there, he was put to temptation just like you and I. The difference is he stood up to it. At every interval, at every choice, Jesus acted righteously. He did what was right before God. And on Calvary, what happened is your sins were placed on him, amen and amen, but at the same time, his righteousness, his law-keeping, his faithfulness was granted to you. So when you stand before God on the day yet to come, when God looks down upon you, he doesn't just see you as forgiven. He also sees you clad in the white robe of his own son's righteousness. His son did the things that you should have done, and he has granted that righteousness to you, as if you were the one who did it. The good news of the gospel is that when Jesus was on Calvary, it wasn't just our sins placed upon him, but his righteousness is placed upon us. All the things that you've done, they are wiped clean. Amen. But all the things that Jesus did right have been credited to you as well. All the things that you have done wrong are wiped clean, and all the things that Jesus did right are credited to you. Theologians sometimes refer to this as Christ's active obedience. He fulfilled the law's mandates, and his fulfillment is credited to us, and that's how we become righteous. And that's how your righteousness and my righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not because we're going to try hard enough, not because we're going to work our way into heaven, not because I'm going to try harder than this person, this person, or the next person, but rather because when God the Father looks at me, he sees me through the lens of his own son's righteousness, and there's nothing that can be added to that. Now that brings us back full circle. We've just had a bit of a segue there, but that brings us back to Christ's words to John the Baptist. See, when Jesus said that he needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, he was saying, John, I've got to do what my people are expected to do. I've got to fulfill the law's mandates entirely. I've got to do all the things that my people are expected to do in order that I might be an appropriate substitute for them. If they're supposed to do X, Y, Z, if they're supposed to abstain from X, Y, Z, if they're supposed to do certain things right and not do certain things that are wrong, I need to do that too in order to fulfill all righteousness so that when they stand before the Father, I am an effective substitute for them. John, I need to do this. John, I need to be baptized because that's an expectation that's placed upon those who will follow me. If God requires us to live sinlessly, to reject temptation, to love others, to live sacrificially, to be baptized, then he needs to do it himself. Otherwise, he is not an effective substitute for us. And that's what he's explaining 
to John. He's saying this obedience, not just the passive obedience by which I will die on the cross, not just the passive obedience by which I will suffer the Roman spear and crucifix, not just that, but through every decision that I'm making, my active obedience throughout all my life, John, I got to do this so that it may be applied, so that these works may be applied, credited to my saints, credited to my followers. There was a theologian, one of the more famous Presbyterian theologians in the past hundred years. His name was J. Gresham Machen. He was the founder of the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. On his deathbed, he wrote a letter, a telegram actually, to another theologian named John Murray. And he said this. This was his last statement. He said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. I have no hope without it. Likewise, you and I have no hope except that Christ fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. All right, let's look at our concluding verses to see how this narrative wraps up. Verses 16 and 17. Now, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And then suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, verses 16 and 17, some of the most important in all the Bible. Now, why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's a lot of reasons why. But among them is this. This is the only occasion, verses 16 and 17, this is the only occasion in all the Bible, in all of Scripture, where all three members, all three persons of the Trinity would have been perceivable through the senses, through the eyes and ears of fallen man. This is the only time in all the Bible when all three members of the Trinity would have been sensibly perceived by anyone standing on the hill and watching. This is the only time in all the Bible where if you had ears to hear and eyes to watch, all three members of the Trinity were made manifest at this time right here at Christ's baptism. See, in verse 16, you have the Son. And the sun does what? Well, the sun goes under the waters, and the sun goes up. And if you were watching, that's what you would have seen, the Son of God being baptized. But then what happened next? Well, then you look up, you see something. There's this dove. It comes down. It alights upon Jesus. And the dove is who? This is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove, alights upon Jesus. And then, on top of what you've seen with your eyes, watching the sun be baptized, the dove come down. But then on top of that, suddenly your ears detect the sound of the Father. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You want to be a fly on the wall for certain moments in, in history? This one's right up there with anything else that you're going to find in all the Bible. Now, as a side note, you know, Trinity is a hard concept to discuss. It's a hard concept to understand. I've been doing this for some time, and the Trinity is one of the more tricky subjects to get in. But one of the mistakes you might have heard some people make is they fall into a category of thought that we call modalism. And what that suggests is that when you're talking about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, that they're all three modes of the same God. It's something more than that. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're not just three modes of the same God. They are three persons with three distinct roles. And we see that at this moment. Let me stop and ask a question about these circumstances here. What was it about Christ's baptism that required such a heavenly show of force? 
I mean, there was all sorts of moments that were pretty important in Christ's life, right? I mean, all sorts of things. Why now? Why this moment? Why did this moment require such a heavenly show of force that the heavens opened, that all members of the Trinity were made manifest at the time? Why now? Why was this circumstance so unique that every part of the Trinity made an appearance? Well, in order to answer that, it might be helpful to remember just when this event takes place. See, this event takes place at the very start or at the very outset of Christ's public ministry. You remember the narrative of Christ? He was born in a manger and then he grows up and we get a brief window into his childhood through just a handful of verses, but then it's largely silent until, until this point here. The words recorded here in Matthew 3 reflect the first words you have of an adult Christ when he's talking to John. This is at the start of his public ministry. Now let me ask you a question. In churches of all denominations, there's usually one particular event that marks the start of, say, a pastor or an elder's ministry. What is that event? It's his, his ordination. When a pastor is first called of God, and he's trained and he's raised up to a role, it's true ruling elders as well, but when that pastor, that elder, that deacon is identified and called he is then brought before his fellow man and hands are laid upon him. And it's as if the hand of God is coming down through the clouds as well upon this individual to call them to service. That's ordination. And it's a public thing, this public calling of such an individual. To be ordained involves having others bear witness, both through the laying on hands and then just participating in that service to your calling for ministry. Well, that's in a sense... In a sense, it's what we're seeing in verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus, he's grown up, and this is the start of his ministry. He's ready. He's ready. He's trained. This is the season to which he was appointed. And in verse 17, the father seems to be inaugurating, validating his son's ministry into a fallen world. And he says this. He says, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. A voice from heaven, which could only be God himself, God the Father, publicly identifies, says, this is my son. Later on, he would do it again at Christ's transfiguration. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But here we see him identifying publicly that this is his son. He's been sent into the world in order to serve God and to save others. Now, on top of that, on top of that validation, that heavenly validation to the ministry of the son, we also see the, the descending of the dove in verse 17. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove on Christ's head. Now, if you were a student of the Old Testament, you would have known that there was a tie-in to what had just happened with the dove. There's a tie-in there. In Isaiah 61, these words are recorded. This prophecy of Christ is recorded. It said this. It said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. In that moment when the dove came down, this was the anointing, the ordination by which he was sent, publicly sent, publicly commissioned to go into the world around him. You could call this event his ordination. When the dove rests upon him, that anointing was tangibly visible. When the Father's voice boomed forth, there was no room for doubt. This particular moment in time marked the occasion by which God commissioned his son into a fallen world. With that said, as we wrap up this morning, the question would be, how would the world respond? God called out the Son. 
called out the Son, ordained the Son, appointed the Son, commissioned the Son to go into the fallen world, to preach the gospel of good news, to point people to the Father. How would the world respond to this ambassador, to this king who was sent from a heavenly kingdom, this divine emissary? How would the world respond? Would the world bow their knees to him? Would the world listen to Jesus and obey his words? Well, as we're going to see in the weeks leading up to Easter, the answer is no. No, they would not. Instead, the world would respond by doing this. Rather than listening to him, rather than obeying him, rather than following him, the world would respond to Jesus by nailing him to a cross. That would be the response. God the Father says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the world of his day and the world of our days would respond by plugging up their ears. Worse than that. Worse than that. By nailing him to a cross. Not merely rejecting his words, not merely turning a blind eye to him, but by killing him on Calvary. As we head towards Easter next month, we are going to consider the person and work of Jesus, who he is, and what he did. But we're also going to understand or study the response of his contemporaries. And we're going to study and consider our own response as well. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.